Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. And unfortunately, I am still getting over this cold. I feel fine, but my voice sounds funny. I apologize. Maybe you enjoy this husky new new voice. Um, I don't. <laughs> anyway, today I have the joy of talking to Grant Blackley from the Orkney Native Wildlife Project about transitioning from airport screening detection dogs to working with more of kind of our traditional free-ranging conservation detection dogs. I'm really excited to get to this interview. Like a couple of our other recent podcasts, Grant is a Patreon, um, and he and I have had the pleasure of getting to know each other and work through some of his training goals um, online together for over a year now. Um, So I'm really excited to have him on the podcast. A little bit more about Grant. He is a conservation dog handler, again, based in the Orkney mainland in the Northern Isles of Scotland, working on a non-native invasive stoat eradication project. A career dog handler, having previously worked in New Zealand as a biosecurity dog handler at the international border, his hobbies include all things dog, hunting, and fishing. I'm super excited to get to this interview. Again, I really think you're going to learn a lot and enjoy um, just absorbing from Grant. He's got a wealth of experience, again, starting out in airport biosecurity and now working in the open heathlands of Scotland. But first, we've got a science highlight to get into. This week, we're reading Olfaction-Based Detection Distance, a quantitative analysis of how far away dogs recognize tortoise odor and follow it to source. This was published in Sensors by Mary Kabilk, John Sagabiel, Jill Heaton, and Cindy Valentina. And I apologize if I've butchered any of those last names. There's a lot of consonants in there. Their aim was to devise a methodology that would capture the fine detail of a, of a dog working to target source for the purpose of determining what an expected range of detection distances for Mojave Desert, Desert tortoises on the landscape um, as opposed to the dogs, or as opposed to tortoises that are in burrows, might be. So again, they're just trying to figure out, okay, what is the fine detail of the moment the dog catches odor to the dog actually sourcing odor to an above-ground tortoise? This research was conducted for one month in April 2014 as, at the Desert Tortoise Conservation Center near Las Vegas, Nevada. The surveys were conducted within plots that were either a half acre or two hectares in size, or half hectare to two hectares inside. The dogs has GPS back backpacks fitted with GPS units that recorded their movements in one-second increments with um, pretty high-level accuracy. The, desist, the distance between the change of direction and the tortoise location was calculated as the detection distance. So basically, they had the dogs wearing the GPSs, and then when they mapped it, they would map the, the moment where the dog changed direction to orient towards the tortoise, um, and then that to the distance to the tortoise as the detection distance. Each change in direction towards the tortoise was evaluated against recorded environmental conditions to determine if the find was likely based on wind carried scent or due to visual observation by the dog, um, which is a really cool thing that they, they thought of there. If the dog was upwind of a tortoise, it was assumed to have seen the tortoise rather than smelled it, which there could have been some lingering odor caught in some eddies somewhere, but okay, that, that, that makes sense. Um, the dogs detected 184 tortoises with eight misses. The researchers believe that 21 detections were visual and 163 were olfactory. Again, it, it's kind of hard to tell, but that seems pretty reasonable. The dogs also detected 64 wild tortoises that had lived in these pens but were not handled or untethered for the purposes of the study. The detection distance kind of ranged from a half meter to 62.82 meters with a mean of 13.91 meters and a median of 11.13. So remember the mean is kind of you add up all the numbers of the detection distances and then divide it by the number of detection distances versus the median is basically if you like take the lowest number and the highest number and then just go to the middle of those two numbers, that's the median. So, but they're pretty close number, you know, 11.3 meters to 13.91 meters, pretty similar. Based on their findings, the dogs had no biases for detecting tortoises based on sex, size, or anthropogenic sense, such as the, the tortoises that had been handled, were wearing backpack transmitters, or had been eating unnatural diets. So the main limitations of the study was that it didn't include tortoises that were in burrows underground. Um, Again, that wasn't what they were trying to study, but if you were a desert tortoise researcher trying to figure out detection distances and you want the dogs to be finding tortoises in burrows, 
this study is not um, necessarily answering that question for you. Previous studies have shown that dogs can detect tortoises in burrows, but this study didn't actually look at the detection distances for that. So again, it's not that it's useless, it's just that it didn't ask or answer that question. This study was only conducted with one in one month with two teams, one dog and one handler per team. The tortoises were tethered in groups of two to four tortoises, and they also didn't set up solo tortoises, although it seems like they did have wild tortoises that were solo. The paper didn't go into detail on how long the dogs were searching for um, each survey plot, so we can't speak to the limitations of how long or difficult they search would have to be. Um, and you know, potentially a half hectare plot that only takes X amount of time True search may not perfectly apply to having the dog search 10 hectares um, in a much longer period of time. But again, as far as we know, now it seems like the dogs um, on average are detecting tortoises from distances between 11.3, 11.13 meters and 13.91 meters, and sometimes as good as 62.82 meters away. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Grant. Well, Grant, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We're happy to have you here. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So why don't we start out with you telling us a little bit about um, kind of your history in the detection dog industry and where you came from before coming into this this current project. My previous history um, was with biosecurity detective dogs in New Zealand at the international mm -hmm. border. And I worked for the Ministry for Primary Industries in Christchurch Airport. Um, and so that was based uh, on incoming passengers um, looking for biosecurity risk items, um, everything from eggs through to seats, plant material, um, you know, animal goods, etc., etc. Wow, yeah. So you were you were still very much so working in kind of this this conservation dog umbrella, just in a much more different um much different setup. So was that, were you kind of screening luggage or were you in an airport or what was kind of the search setup like there? So we were based in the, in the International Arrivals Hall um, and so mm -hmm. we searched incoming passengers' luggage and incoming passengers' on-body search as well with the dog. Okay. Um, and we, all, we also did a little bit of cargo stuff, uh, but not too much in Christchurch. Uh, the, the guys up in Auckland in the, the other part of the MPI buildings um, they had the mail centre as well, so they had a, a wider okay. range of, of stuff to do, whereas we were just basically international airport. Gotcha. Yeah, and were you were you partnered with a dog, um, or tell us about your, your partner or partners that you had um, throughout that project. Yeah, so the, the story there is that you, you apply um, for a role mm -hmm. and then you get assigned a dog. So you go on a 15-week training course um, and you can either, it's either an experienced dog or a green dog you get, depending mm -hmm. on what's available at the time. Um, I was fortunate enough to be given a chocolate Labrador, Emmett was his name, um, and he was green when I started, um, very green. <laughs> um, but we built a great partnership um, together, and he was, a, he was a great dog. Not many chocolate Labradors make it through the programme. In fact, he was the only one mm -hmm. in the whole of MPI, pro MPI programme. And he was actually a gift dog um, from a family. He was just too much for them. He was purebred, mm -hmm. um, but he just was too much for them in the home. And so they gifted him to MPI, and I was fortunate to be his, his keeper for a while, a while. Yeah, yeah. I grew up with a chocolate lab, and I, I feel like there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> they get a lot of shade in uh, a lot of the detection dog industries. But the dog I had was, I mean, she was the dog of my life. She was amazing. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you had was, similar luck with Emmett. It was hard to leave him um, when I left New Zealand uh, mm -hmm. to come to this project. Uh, he was a he was a good good partner for all that time. And um, the slight difference being that those dogs are kenneled um, in mm. commercial kennels um, simply because they can't be at home and be around. Obviously, all the food items that we are seizing. So you couldn't have apples in the house. You couldn't have a bowl of fruit sitting because it just indicate on right. it. You uh -huh. couldn't have food, meat, or anything. Um, it would just indicate everything in the house, every possible thing that you had. Um, so those dogs were commercially kenneled. Um, so we only had work time together. We didn't have home uh -huh. time together. Oh, that is so interesting. That is, because that is a true scenario. And I don't know how many other disciplines we would run into that with, because even 
you know, even an accelerant detection dog or a drug detection dog, in theory, they should not be running into their targets <laughs> anywhere else uh, in the environment, especially if they've been appropriately kind of proofed off of, you know, your accelerant detection dog shouldn't just be alerting to gasoline on its own in most cases, in my understanding. I'm obviously not an expert. Yeah, no one. I know our, the partner agencies, like at Customs, um, they mm-hmm. take the dogs home, they house the dogs at home. Because you would assume mm-hmm. a Customs officer wasn't exposing his dog to methamphetamine or, or yeah. any other yeah. drugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> presumably, <laughs> the, presumably they don't have methamphetamine at home. Yeah, yeah, versus you obviously probably do have meat, eggs, fruit, veggies, like basically everything that you would want to eat your dog would have been alerting to. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, even as far as having lemon trees in the garden, um, you know, <laughs> indicating things uh-huh. that, you know, I've read about them. We didn't reward outside, so you could take your dog for a walk and he'd find a banana outside, but we didn't uh-huh. reward for that. Um, we just, it was just a partner. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we don't reward for things outside um, when yeah. you come across them, um, just yeah. to try and get away from that. But it was more the fact that um, exposing your dog to the odour constantly may cause, uh-huh. you know, the, an, ext- an extinction in it, really. Um, because it's yeah. become so used to that odour that it's, it's not going to alert me anymore, not get rewarded uh-huh. at home, then why would I bother alerting Yeah, I can really it? see, I can see how, you know, maybe like just thinking, I've got uh, Sarah Owings, I've got an interview with her again in a little bit talking about stimulus control, and I can see how a skilled trainer with a good plan might be able to figure out how to make that work, but it does just seem like a lot to ask for your average dog and handler. Um, so that that's probably the one of the best um, justifications I think I've heard, aside from the dogs that are kind of dual trained in um, police work for having a dog that really does kind of need to be kenneled as part of their working dog uh, repertoire. Yeah, it also meant because the MPI had 50, between 50 and 60 handlers, they didn't mm-hmm. have to supply us all with vehicles. <laughs> if the dogs are coming from kennel, they just share sheer vehicles um, when you're on duty. Mm-hmm. So it saved that, that whole, um, you know, paying for a dog to be at home thing. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so tell us about um, what you're doing. Well, and how long were you there? Um, and then tell us um, kind of what you're doing now. Yeah, so the career with in the biosecurity side, uh, I did two years, which they recommend um, before you become a dog handler, as just a, a quarantine officer. Um, so mm-hmm. working just on in the inspections of the declared goods at the airport. Um, I then went into the dog handling side and was there four years um, with Emmett. Then decided that, yeah, I was I was needing to branch out in my, my career um, and I'd always you know, wanted to do the, the conservation dog side of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very hard industry to get into in New Zealand. It's, although it's, you know, the yeah. pioneers of it, um, it's quite closed. There's not that many dog handlers and they tend to be Department of Conservation Rangers who happen to have a dog and that's mm-hmm. the way it kind of works. Um, so I looked at, you know, the, the various options um, and an option that came up was here in Scotland, in my home country, um, with the Orkney Native Wildlife Project. They were looking for dog handlers um, on a stoked eradication programme, which uh, has now been running for three years. Wow, Yeah. So, yeah, and that kind of brings us to what I wanted to talk to you about, which is just, I think, you know, there's so much diversity in the detection dog world, and you've got the really unique um, position of having done two pretty extremely different sides of it. Um, So what are some of the things, and we'll we'll kind of split out these questions um, in the dog side and then the people slash business side. So what are some of the things that are the same on the dog side between the first biosecurity gig in New Zealand and now working with the stoat eradication stuff in Scotland? I mean, the basic training is, is, is it's roughly the same. Um, you're looking for, it's a, a passive indication you're aiming for. Um, it's a, the difference being a, in New Zealand in the biosecurity job, we're rewarded with kibble, um, whereas this role, it's a ball reward um, for the dog here. And the, the reason for that is that you don't have space to throw a ball in an international arrivals hall to reward the dog. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so, 
Reward was kibble, and it's quick and fast, controlled. Um, the biosecurity dog side is it's a very controlled environment, and you've got to be very spatially aware mm-hmm. around you to protect your dog, because people are vicious with trolleys, and they're just they're just on a mission um, to get their bags and get out of the airport, and they just oh don't God. look they don't look where they're going. They're, mm-hmm. It's just madness. Um, so we actually oh quite often had a follower, another handler whose dog was on rest period. And we worked 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off. And the other handle was basically your your eyes and ears. And they would kind of block people. And as soon as you get an alert, you had to stick your leg out to protect your dog's tail, stop people running over it. Um, And the other person would try and control people right about you um, Uh just to, to, you know, get that done. Whereas the conservation dog side come out in the open. Um, The dog's running free. I I don't see people. (laughs) Um, It's a very much... um, it's a more relaxed atmosphere, uh, and again, the airport is very controlled. And I, mm-hmm. your dogs on leash all the time; um, they're mm-hmm. never allowed off leash in the work environment. And you talk a lot to the dog. We were taught to talk a lot um, using commands um, of "round this way, over here, seek, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Whereas mm-hmm. that was a hard thing to get out of with a conservation dog, where I don't have to speak a lot to my current mm-hmm. dog, um, Thorn, who's an English Springer Spaniel. Um, he just he just gets on with it, uh, and you know if I need to say something, then I say it. If I don't, if he's working, then why speak to him? It's just white mm-hmm. noise at the end of the day. Um, and if it's a great, it's been a big been a big job, um, you know, stopping talking to them because uh, I, I spent so many years just chitter chatting to a dog, and then suddenly I'm I'm just silent and just get on with a walk really, and he's getting on with the job. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like, um, especially kind of having watched some videos of you and Thorne working together, and you're in these pretty open open areas where you're really doing quite a lot of ranging, the search style is really very different between um, between these two gigs, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, as, as I say, from never being off leash um, to suddenly just the dog running out to, you know, whatever distance he wants to go, um, really, to go and find to follow order, and it's mm-hmm. just up to me to, to kind of work behind them and keep up. And he, he has a, he's a natural range of about 20 to mm-hmm. 25 meters. Um, he's comfortable working at that distance. He's not a not a really far ranging dog, and I've mm-hmm. not encouraged any further ranging because I need to be in, in a position to reward, to confirm and reward. Yeah. Um, without him building frustration for me getting there, um, and because of the the danger of cliffs and et cetera, et cetera. I've got to be within a, you know, recall distance, um, mm-hmm, instant stop, course. whistle, um, just to just to have them that range um, all the time. It takes a village to keep canine conservationists running. One of our valued team members is Sunny Murphy, who runs Black Flower Content Writing. Sunny started out as a volunteer creating infographics based on our podcast episodes, but quickly earned her place as a paid member of the team. If you need a creative, enthusiastic voice to help your company or nonprofit with blog writing, social media planning, and or email newsletter campaigns, check out Black Flower Writing Services. I cannot recommend Sunny highly enough. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. Okay, so we were talking a little bit about some of the things that are different on the dog side. What are some of the things that you have really found the same as far as, you know, maybe that's foundational training, maybe it's just overall dog husbandry skills. What are some of the things that you've really found to be the same between these two really different applications? The dog care, obviously, um, is, mm-hmm. is just the same. Um, it's the same, same daily checks on your dog. It's the same, you know, health checks done daily. The same health checks done at the end of shift to make sure the dog's, you know, happy, healthy. Uh, the training side is a bit different in that we now, in this role, use Kong as your base order um, mm-hmm. and then pair Stotescat to the Kong. So we've always got Kong to go back to in a training scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the airport, we actually use cardboard boxes um, with the actual food item in either an open box or a sealed box. And that's just the way that, that we trained there. Um, we didn't use Kong, etc., in training that. But I had mm-hmm. used Kong in other applications. Um, there's a couple other little scenarios that I, that I looked into um, with the conservation dog side, um, mm-hmm. where, where I had been shown how to use a Kong. 
um, and it's, it's a great base system. Uh, for instance, at the moment we can't take Stoats Gat to a predator-free island. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, we're there on a on a, a presence or absence basis. We don't want to take Scat there because we could create a false um, indication. So mm-hmm. it's good having Kong because we can just take a little bit of Kong with us. And when the dog's exceedingly bored, finding nothing after five hours, we can throw out a bit of Kong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in the yeah. airport. Was, we did the same in the airport with apples and oranges and fruit and whatever mm-hmm. items um, because we're periods of certain countries, certain nations are higher fines for the dog um, on incoming passengers. But the mm-hmm. general day to day, there'd be long periods of the day where we're not finding anything. So our partner mm-hmm. chucks an apple in somebody's bag um, or yeah. something in someone's trolley and then you know the dog gets a fine when it comes through um, just to pick them up a little bit as you know yeah of course yeah and even with 20 minutes on 20 minutes off which um actually sounds somewhat similar to like the wind farm work that i'm doing right now where we kind of do one turbine and then we have to input all of our data and then load everyone up and then drive to the next turbine so they get quite a bit of those natural breaks but otherwise in the conservation dog field they're often working with much longer searches um so do you think, kind of going back to what you were talking about as far as how much direction you were kind of giving with Emmett versus what you do with Thorn, do you think that that was necessary because of the environment or was it a little bit more kind of cultural in the airport world or a little bit of both? I feel that it was quite cultural. It's kind of what they've always done. Um, mm-hmm. it, it didn't sit well with me at the time um, speaking so much to the dog. And just really distracting him quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But again, it changed airport to airport. Mm-hmm. Other airports that dogs are working at are, were far busier than the airport I was at. And so having that direct control and that um, directional control of the over here, round this way, mm-hmm. it almost was like a ballet dance you were doing with the dog because you're having to twist and turn around trolleys and yeah. everything was presented. You presented the box, so you actually flipped the, the passenger's luggage to make a sound for the dog to go there and sniff that item. Uh-huh. Again, we don't do that at all um, with the conservation dog. You know, we no. don't touch anything. Um, so, again, that was a bit <laughs> It would be very hard to cover 300 acres if you had to touch everything you wanted your dog to sniff. Um. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. And really, in the airport, the dog just got on with it. The dog would go and sniff um, if it was good enough. I think it was just basically, mm-hmm. it was a way to have a standardised approach for 60 handlers. Yeah. Because you had 60 handlers of all abilities, um, mm-hmm. that having a standardised approach, everything was the same in an airport. So yeah. and every dog reacted the same. So you, you could work other people's dogs on shift if your dog mm. was ill or if someone was having a break. And it just meant that every dog did the same. Yeah, it's it's so I think the closest thing I've ever done would be when Barley and I were in Yellowstone and doing um, boat work. So we were searching boats for invasive zebra mussels. And um, the nice thing with a boat that I can see being really different from like a line of passengers, because I'm imagining this is kind of like at the arrivals, you're you're kind of searching these people as they're waiting for their visas or whatever. Um, Yeah, at the baggage collection areas um, Uh and also at the exits. We did a lot of green lane exit work. Um, so we're searching gotcha. people who have declared nothing and just before they pop out the door I pop up with the dog and run it around them and mm-hmm. they just see if they actually have anything on them yeah yeah because like the most directed work I've ever done was with the boats and but the nice thing with a boat is within reason pretty much all boats are kind of you know, the, you know you've got the same basic plan so you can kind of get the dog and the handler to really pattern it and then I could step back. One of the things that seems really interesting to me about this airport work is that you are not giving an official demonstration so you do not have the chance to communicate with these passengers necessarily and you're in work mode but I can see how some of these presentations and the directions and whatnot are almost I want to say performative, but I don't mean that in a negative way, as far as just letting the hundreds and hundreds of people who are watching you work really know that you've got this dog under control, you're a professional, this dog is going to do what you're asking it to do. I wonder how much of it culturally could also come to that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we know, some cultures have have a fear of dogs. Of Um, course. And so, you know, you have to take everything into account um, and be... I had to scan the passengers to know where I was going and who I was mm-hmm. approaching. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, 
it is an, an environment where people are, are very inquisitive and you have mm-hmm. to, it's a, there's a lot of PR skills involved in mm-hmm. it. And again, the problem with having a chocolate lab was everyone wanted to pat them. And yeah, I just yeah, of spent course. my whole life saying, don't touch my dog. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he loved it. You know, he was a chocolate lab. He just liked the yeah. pat that we passed. But you're saying, no, he's supposed to be working, not getting pat. Yeah, because yeah, I can imagine, like, you know, hypothetically, we could take Thorne and release him into Glasgow Airport. And he could, you know, make sure nobody's got any stoats in their bags. I don't know why they would. And he would probably do his job just fine, with at least with appropriate proofing and whatnot. But that would... Just it would look so hectic and so crazy to the airport that even though, and it wouldn't necessarily be safe. Um, anyway, yeah, it's just it's the search style stuff is so interesting to me. Uh, these differences yeah, between have, what's necessary and what's cultural. Go ahead. Yeah, we did try a couple of springers, um, but they're mm-hmm. just too too frantic um, to <laughs> yeah. be an elite, and you just get tied in knots. Um, and mm-hmm. as you say, it doesn't look particularly tidy. Um, yeah, they're getting the job done, but you're having to work a lot harder to keep up with them. Um, but as a nice smooth, he actually preferred, the dog of choice um, for MPI was Beagles um, mm-hmm. because they're non-threatening, really good dogs at sniffing. Um, mm-hmm. And really, it, it goes back to the whole non-threatening thing. Um, you have some yeah. nations that feared certain breeds of dogs. Um, mm-hmm. And so you, it's just a very good public image thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. I mean, here in the US, um, I'm very tangentially involved in this, but just because I listen to a lot of the same working dogs podcasts that are not conservation dogs, like there's, they're all about trying to figure out how to get more pointers and labs into a lot of these particular airport um, or like stadium bomb dog sorts of searches because, you know, the pointy eared Malinois freak people out a little bit. Um, they do. They do. Yeah. Um, and that's just, you know, the way, the way it's been portrayed. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So then let's kind of shift gears a little bit to the human side. What are some of the things that are like the same or different as far as the human and the business end of things between these two applications? Well, I'm no longer a regulatory enforcement officer. (laughs) (laughs) I no longer have to wear a uniform. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, as well as being a dog handler, I was you know, a, a regulatory enforcement officer handing out $400 mm-hmm. fa- infringement fines. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, everyone loved to see my dog. Everyone loved the dog until it finds something in their bags, right. indicating something in their trolley. And then no one likes me anymore because I've just mm-hmm. fined them $400. Um, <laughs> which, you know, that's that's just the way it works. Um, yeah. <laughs> difference being now, yes, it's a much, I'm doing a conservation job. Um, again, there's still a lot of PR involved. Uh, mm-hmm. We work quite closely. It's with um, the community. We're in a lot of farmland, so we have to build a relationship with farmers and ensure them that our dogs are safe um, and mm-hmm. won't chase livestock um, or under th- direct control, under recall. And so that's the important part, that, that farmers are are happy that our dogs are able to work in their land. And sometimes, you know, it takes we have to actually go and show people and say, look, this is a dog, this is what he does. Um, and there's this recall, and, you know, that, that just works fine. Um, again, working for a charity um, conservation project, slightly different to working for central government, um, mm-hmm. different structure, a whole different pace of, of um, life here in Orkney. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, we think we think of New Zealand as a, as a relaxed pace of life, but, yeah, I've had to come down a few gears, Um Mm-hmm. We worked. We worked fairly hectically, and again, much shorter hours um, in this business. Uh, no longer have shift work. No, no night shifts. Um, we yeah. only work during daylight hours. So uh, <laughs> that sounds and awesome. I, yeah, and I love working the outdoors. I'm, you know, I was mm-hmm. a farmer, a shepherd before I came into this conservation, or came into this dog work. Really, um, I trained and bred sheepdogs all my life. So wow, I, I didn't know that about you. Doors work. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I was. A, I used to have a team of six working dogs uh-huh. um, as a shepherd, and so I uh, enjoy the outdoors, and the great outdoors. Yes, yeah. I actually yeah. enjoy being on being on farm. I've got, kind of got an affinity with farmers, and mm-hmm. I'm able to understand their point of view, um, and I understand why 
they're hesitant to allow yeah. dogs on some of their farms. Um, I was exactly the same. Um, yeah, of course. Through my career. And so, yeah, it's a, it's certainly a much calmer atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I can imagine just about the most laid-back country, their airport still is probably a relatively hectic place. That's a, a really good way to amp up um, just about any any environment. Is Let's make it a big international coming and going place where everyone's stressed out and exhausted. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just the time scales. It's you know you've got arrivals, lots of flights arriving, and everyone's got to be cleared by some time. There's just this big push all the time to get passengers yeah. cleared um, because people have schedules. You know, people are in to get on with their life out the airport, um, tourists mm-hmm. arriving, getting buses, etc. So we just yeah. have to kind of clear as as quickly and efficiently as possible, which didn't often um, sit well with doing dog work. Um, you know, we, yeah. we really could have a slower pace um, for some of the, the people going through, but it was dictated really by, um, yes, the higher up the chain as to mm-hmm. getting things through. And, and as long as we weren't taking risk um, items through, then, you know, we'd try not to delay passengers as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a whole other human element that, you know, again, the only uh, corollary I have is the Yellowstone work I did where, yeah, sometimes we had people who were a little irritated that they couldn't just go launch their boat right away and we had to run the dog through it. But at least the nice thing in that situation is the dogs are faster than the human aquatic invasives um, searchers. So even though they were a little annoyed about the fact that they had to be searched at all, the dogs are faster than their other option. So, and most people are excited enough about a nice cute. I was handling um, a yellow lab for most of that job as well as Barley. And, you know, especially that big yellow lab, people would be pretty thrilled to see him. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's, again, the similarity, it's all about education. Mm-hmm. It's about educating people that you come in touch with. And yeah. so if I could educate someone that the reason I'm finding you is because this is a risk um, to the country mm-hmm. you've brought in with you is exactly the same now as saying I'm eradicating, eradicating stoats because they present this risk to the environment of Orkney um, being non-native invasive and so again it just comes down to educating people as you go along uh, and you know make them understand why you're doing a role yeah yeah exactly so um, we've got just a couple more questions here um so one is from Meg, who's also on Patreon, um, asking if there was anything that you thought would be really easy in the transition that turned out to be surprisingly hard or, or vice versa. Um, what, what kind of blew up your expectations? I didn't have a huge amount of the conservation um, experience side for this role. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have degrees in ecology or anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it was a bit of a worry. I can do the dog stuff I knew. Um, again, Thorn is a project-owned dog. He's not my dog. Mm-hmm. So I arrived here um, from New Zealand um, and got given a dog. I had no idea what dog I was getting when I came, came here. Mm-hmm. I didn't see him until he, you know, the training day that he arrived. Um, so wow. it was quite hard. Um, I didn't get any kind of choice, much choice in the matter. Um, mm-hmm. Turned out that, yeah, he's a great dog, excellent dog. Yeah. Um, one of the best dogs I've seen. Um, and that, again, when I went through the training for the biosecurity dog, we were paired with two dogs during the programme for the 15 weeks. And then by week 13, it was kind of chosen which dog had, had clicked better with, with me as a handler. And then again, the bosses made that decision that that was going to be my dog. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to spend a lot more time with the dog beforehand. And could say, hey, you know, that's, I don't think it is a dog for me. Um, yeah. Whereas this project had already kind of bought the dogs um, before my arrival. Yeah, yeah, with uh, a smaller uh, program, there's less, less flexibility for that. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, again, just getting used to being outdoors again, uh, mm-hmm. having spent a lot of years at an air conditioned indoor <laughs> environment, um, working shift work. It was a bit of a change, yeah, doing the the daylight hour shifts again, 
and uh, having weekends off was quite amazing. <laughs> oh yeah! <laughs> Only working a five a five day week is like whoa, that's great. Uh, yeah. The transitioning wasn't too hard, uh, mm-hmm. dog training wise. Um, I had the kind of basic skills, and I, I do a lot of reading and a lot of podcast listening. Um, mm-hmm. Office, obviously. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and I, I try to keep up to date with, with most of the the modern um, knowledge because it's mm-hmm. just constantly evolving and growing. And there's there's great contacts out there. I've made some great contacts um, in the industry uh, through both Patreon and um, mm-hmm. at the Wildlife Detection Conference. Um, was a was a great setup. Yeah. Uh, again, make some some great contacts. Um, so much so that I actually sent some Stotesgat off recently to Switzerland um, for a project there. They were looking for Stotesgat, um, and so I managed to spare a couple of jars here after we've just had a bumper season of finding Stotesgat. Oh, cool. uh, so hopefully we can help someone else out. Yeah, oh, that's great. I love hearing stuff like that. So um, I guess one of the other questions I had was, is there anything that you kind of see being done really well in the biosecurity realm or kind of airport um, security dogs in general that maybe is missing in the conservation dog field? Is there anything that you kind of brought to this new job that you think was helpful for yourself or for the project that more of us need to know about? <laughs> That's an interesting question. One thing that I... Being one thing I learned and one thing I, I suppose, enjoyed was structure in my previous mm-hmm. jobs. Um, working for central government, obviously, it's very structured um, and, and very organised. And some of the conservation world side, it, it's very hard to, I suppose, plan ahead when you're funding based. And yeah, there's a lot of great talent out there looking for work and there's not a lot of money in the conservation world giving them work and so that's a really hard um thing to look in to look at and see that there's there's no real kind of pooling of talent and saying we've got all these handlers and we need to you know pull this knowledge of information um again having some contact with the department of mm-hmm. conservation in new zealand where it's a again a government-run scheme the handlers there it's funded by kiwi bank um triannually and so it's um they've got a lot more i suppose forward planning on what they're doing mm-hmm. i find it hard looking at the industry here the conservation dog side that people tender for jobs and not knowing if you get that job or not it's very hard to live day to day um yeah knowing that you're just basically you know one funder away from from you know ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. And, yeah, you're really hitting us where it hurts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's the difference of, you know, as I say, earning a wage is having mm-hmm. even in this role, you know, I earn a decent wage, um, and my dog's provided for me. And that's quite unusual in conservation dog work. Um ordinarily I, I would have expected to have to find my own dog and then be on a on a contract um so yeah it's it's going to be inter- interesting come the time that i eventually leave this project as to where the future goes then yeah um, yeah are you on a contract basis where that is something that is going to happen for you or are you staff that is around for the foreseeable future and you would also also don't have to go into that if you'd rather not <laughs> no no i'm much on a contract um so mm-hmm. there, there will be a contract end date um and then unfortunately depending on how he's how he's faring then again thorn doesn't belong to me mm, so that's something that yeah. i've kind of had to yeah. live with throughout my career um that yeah the dog doesn't belong to me and i have to move on and Depend at what stage the project is. Um, if the project has completed, then there may be other work. Um, but he'll move on to another conservation project within mm-hmm. the wider partnerships that are part of this this 
in project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a, uh, it's one. Uh, yeah, I think both of those are really tough things in this field, and I think not owning the dog is maybe. I think that's relatively common in a lot of the working dog fields, but the lack of financial and long-term security, um, I think is especially pronounced in the conservation dog field. And gosh, I, I, I feel like all of the handlers and trainers out there, like we all know it. And I don't know if anyone really knows how to fix it. And I don't know if we are the ones to fix it. Um, yeah, I don't know. We, you know, I don't think we have the agency to get that done. So then what, what do we do to start moving in that direction anyway? Um, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a growing industry in the UK, conservation mm-hmm. dogs at the minute, and there aren't many. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quite a lot of handlers coming forward uh, now looking for work. And so how do you grow that industry um, sustainably? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want it that you flood the place with handlers and dogs um, yeah. for the short term to really, there'd be no future in it. Um, and they're not to be the sustainable work um, going, going forward. Yeah. I think we've got to look at it very carefully as to how they how they employ people. Um, yeah. And hand on the rates, you know, it's uh, conservation's always been very poorly paid compared mm-hmm. to other industries. Um, and so that, again, maybe the industry needs to look at what they want the future to be um, can yeah. they pay for someone to train their dog? Can they pay for someone to, you know, keep that training up, um, and and not have long lead-in times to projects? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it'll be interesting yeah. to see how it goes forward. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're at a very a very interesting uh, point in the uh, in the conservation dog history right now. I think. Um, yeah, and you know, on the on the flip side, I know you know there's so there's quite a bit of interest, which I think is a good thing, and hopefully we can get the interest um, from agencies and zoos and land managers and nonprofits and all that to match the interest from incoming handlers. But there's also, I think, some mismatch in communication, and that's I mean that's one of the things we're trying to work on in this podcast. But for example, I was just speaking to someone earlier um, earlier this month about they're trying to get a citizen science conservation dog program up and running. And the person who is in charge of trying to get this program up and running has actually never trained or handled a conservation dog herself. Um, And it was one of those things where, you know, hopefully we're going to be able to step in and help them out. But that project seems likely to not go really well because there's too much enthusiasm and not enough expertise and how do we match the enthusiasm from the uh, from the agencies or the NGOs or whoever with the expertise and enthusiasm that's coming from the handlers is kind of a you know again <laughs> we're still working on that one oh definitely and uh, and I think that you just see there's a lot of work ahead um, mm-hmm. they've got to balance expectations uh, there's quite a lot of overseas um, input in a lot of projects in the UK where they've done something similar but there's quite a lot of difference um, when you actually look at it on the ground mm-hmm. and so it's you've got to kind of balance um, the knowledge from overseas with the conditions um, on the ground. In, in the territory you're working with mm-hmm. it doesn't um, you know, square pegs round holes Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that analogy, was a huge thing we learned when we were in Kenya. It's like, oh gosh, yeah, it turns out dealing with elephants is is not something that we're we're experts in. We should really yeah. probably sit down and shut up and let them tell us about this because we know dogs, we don't know elephants. <laughs> oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you, um, you know, one of the things you mentioned you wanted to make sure we touch on is kind of career planning in the conservation dog industry. Did you have anything else you wanted to add on that or anything else, like other directions we want to take that? Because I think, I think you're right. This is so important for this field right now. Well, I think you've got to just temper your enthusiasm um, <laughs> and really learn from the best. There's a, going down the career path route, what I did initially, again, I'll go back to starting the biosecurity dogs. Um, when mm-hmm. I arrived in New Zealand 18 years ago, no, sorry, nearly 20 years ago now, um, 
wow. I was yeah. first met by dogs in the airport and I thought, what a cool job. Uh-huh. I'd quite like to do that. Uh-huh. Um, it then took me another, you know, 12 years to get myself around to get that job. Um, yeah. And what I, what I looked at is how can I pos- put myself the best position to get this job? And so I had to look at what were the people they were employing? What was their backgrounds? What was their knowledge? And how can I, you know, get that knowledge and try and grow my background a wee bit um, mm-hmm. to position myself in that? And that um, involved working as a rural vet technician um, to get some, you know, to be able to put rural vet technician in my CV um, because I realised they employed a lot of vet nurses. And I thought, look, I'm not going down the vet nurse route, but if I can have some vet veterinary um, involvement, Experience. then that's mm-hmm. good, experience in it. So I did that. Mm-hmm. Again, working as an animal control officer, um, which is dog control in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent five years doing that to expose myself to all sorts of dogs, every dog possible, um, yeah. from little yappy chihuahuas to big angry pit bulls, um, just to, again, build my dog knowledge, build my dog handling skills mm-hmm. um, and, you know, get that through. Again, doing two years as a, as a quarantine officer before I got the dog, applied for the dog role. Um, again, just build your knowledge of the what yeah. is the core role here. Um, it's great being a dog handler, but you've got to know what is legislation. You've got to know your legal right there um, and what you, you know what it's all about. So I think the conservation, I would love to have you know, had an ecology degree, but what I did have knowledge of for this project was stoats. Um, mm-hmm. I've trapped and, and, you know, I was a hunter um, in New Zealand. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And so I'm used to, you know, trapping, shooting, everything else. So I've got that yeah. base knowledge of how to catch a stoat in a trap. It's quite regulated here in that there's only so many traps you're allowed to use now in the spring mm-hmm. trap control order. Um, we're, you know, very, very... Um, I wouldn't say hamstrung by legislation, but it certainly is very, very limited here. We can't use poisons. We can't use um, some of the traps that worked in the past. Mm. They're now banned. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's it's a. It was just having that knowledge, I think. So look at what you're aiming to do. Um, I you know I love the non-native invasive stuff. Um, yeah, and I'd had you know a little bit of exposure again in New Zealand to that, so mm-hmm. it was just kind of building on that. <laughs> I mean, it seems, uh, yeah, it seems like one of the two of the big things that I'm hearing you say are one, kind of knowing where you're at and where you need to be, and figuring out the gaps, and then being kind of patient and systematic as you work through that. Like you said, it took you eighteen. Or what was it, about 12 years between yeah, kind of seeing yeah. the dogs and then actually getting the position that you really wanted? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and I know for me it was building. five um, five years, which is a lot less than 12. But still, it's not the sort of thing where this is not a position that you can just kind of go out and find. A bu- like, even if you are willing to move anywhere in the world and work for free, you will probably not be able to get a job doing this next summer. No, and that's what people have to understand. Um, yeah. There's a lot of people have their own dogs. And again, it's you've got to look at what you've got. And mm-hmm. you may think your dog's the best in the world um, because everyone's <laughs> got a, an opinion of their own dogs. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to just get somebody else in to look, mm-hmm. get an expert round, and just and take their take their advice um, on board. Um it may be that that dog's just not quite suitable for that role. Yeah. But there'll be other roles it might be more suitable for. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't don't be pushing yourself into into corners um, and pigeonholing yourself, saying, I'm going to do this, I'm only going to do this, this is where I want to be. Just look at the bigger picture. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and you can change orders. You can start on, yeah. you know, muscles and, and end up on stoats um, and say that, the biosecurity dogs we had were, were trained on probably 40 or 50 odors. Um, mm-hmm. So it's just be patient, as you say, and build skills. Yeah. And we don't all get it right. We don't get it right every day. No. Um, you make mistakes and 
you've got to learn from those mistakes, though. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and we've, I've made some clangers in my, my time. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I won't list them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like, I know for me, like, half of this podcast was me being like, okay, I've been in this field now for four or five years. I'm at a point now where I'm on my own. How do I keep learning? Okay, great. I'll just interview a bunch of people and I'll learn from them. And then, you know, so that it doesn't feel quite so selfish and that they'll agree to talk to me, I'll make it into a podcast. Um, And I'm constantly like kind of frantically taking notes as I'm listening to the episodes um, before they go public, before they go live or anything, being like, oh my gosh, this is so smart. I know I already heard this once, but like, like the Skyless Ecology episode that just went live, like, I'm going to have yeah. to listen to that like five times over and over because Tracy and Fiona had so much good stuff to say and just, you know, be humble and try to keep learning and know, you know, and if you don't know your own gaps yet, then join Patreon. We'll help you figure out what they are. <laughs> yeah, no, and, you know, people are, I found people very willing to give you advice and um, mm-hmm. give you help. You know, just flick my email and say, hey, you know, I'm struggling with this. Can you give me any advice on it? And you know, people are quite willing to yeah. to give you that bit of help in this industry. Um, and yeah. I think you know, it could go it could go a long way. Um, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, is there anything else you wanted to circle back to or expand on a little bit more before we wrap up here? No, I think um, I think I've given quite a good overview of uh-huh. of where it came from and how to get um, to mm-hmm. get. To your goal, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, you know, I'll be, I'm growing every day, and hopefully from this role, I'll go into another great conservation role, dog role somewhere. Yeah, um, just don't know where yet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or what. Well, given but, your border uh, collie experience, you'd uh, you'd be welcome here if you ever decide you want to move on the other side of the pond. <laughs> We've yeah. got plenty for you. <laughs> don't have don't have Joe Biden. will give me a green card. Yeah, I know. I'm actually actively looking at PhD programs overseas, so I don't know why I'm inviting people here. Um, <laughs> that's neither here nor there, though. Well, Grant, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's, I've really enjoyed getting to know you over the last year or so online. I hope we get to meet in person someday. Um, are you active on social media in a way that you want people to come find you at all, or would you would you rather not? <laughs> Yeah, so I I have my own page, which is conservation.dog on Facebook. Okay, great. And it's just something that I put together that I share a few articles on that I find. And uh-huh. share a few pictures of myself and Thorn. And it's, yeah, it's just just a way of um, keeping in touch with a lot of people in the industry. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a... Yeah, I don't well, do we'll be sure. <laughs> Instagram or, or Twitter, sadly. I, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm starting to lose interest with Instagram. And now I'm just, I, I'm like, I guess if I'm going to do social media, I might as well do LinkedIn and Twitter where the scientists are. Um, <laughs> so we'll make sure to link that in the show notes. And um, Grant, thank you again for coming on. To all your listeners, thanks for sticking around. Um, hope you learned a lot and are learning inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. You can find show notes, donate to canine conservationists, buy merch, and join Patreon to hang out with me and Grant and Meg and all of our other lovely patrons all over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.